Hello and welcome to Stig Abel's Guide to Reading, a podcast in which I talk about books that mean something to me and a special guest. It's being made in conjunction with my own book, Things I Learned on the 628, which is out in November 2020, an account of a year I spent reading books on my commute, if you can remember that concept at all. And I came up with various theories about different types of literature, from crime fiction to American classics, from Shakespeare to poetry. This week, we'll be discussing non-fiction, which, as genres go, is a fairly capacious one. I discuss in the book how this is a golden era for the autodidact, people like me who are constantly conscious of the depth of their own ignorance and constantly looking to fill it up with factual information. In my book, I talk about three non-fiction classics, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, Sapiens by Noah Yuval Harari, and Against Interpretation and Other Essays by Susan Sontag. And my special guest today is a best-selling writer of non-fiction himself, as well as being the doyen of speech radio and the scourge of social media, a man with his palms surgically implanted against his head in existential despair. It's James O'Brien, who's followed up his book, How to Be Right, with a new one imaginatively called How Not to Be Wrong. James, hello. Thank you. Hello. Um, so the idea behind the show, really, James, is we just uh, we both nominate a book and then talk about why we like it. Do you... Do you feel a kind of constant quest to to learn new things? No, not not in the sense that you've just described. I think I'm more. I don't know what the um what the Greek composite <laughs> word would be, but I'm more interested in in learning from other other people's perspectives. I'm more interested in how the world looks from other people's windows than I am in necessarily increasing the sum total of my own objective knowledge. That's, I mean, not to the exclusion of a little bit of light um auto didaction but I think just as you said that I found myself asking myself the question and I, I, I think at this stage in my life I'm particularly given some of the sort of trends and tides of contemporary society I'm, I'm more interested in in what people see from where they are sitting rather than the notion of an objective reality that we all subscribe to. Is that because you you think in reality there is no longer a, such a thing as objective authority I mean because in, in some ways that's been the great ad, uh, advance or, or regression, depending on how you look at it, of the last 20 years, the idea of objectivity has kind of disappeared. I, I, I'm glad that we started with a nice, easy question. Yeah. <laughs> the death of objective truth. No, I don't think it is. I think it is, I, I, I mean, as we'll see with the book I've chosen, I, I, I've always felt quite dislocated, but but also a, a sort of duality at my core, the different people I could have been. And as I get older and uh, I've achieved this, bizarre reputation for for you know laying down the law and 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 believing that I'm right the opposite has happened internally I find myself wondering more and more whether I would look at the world very differently if I'd been born in a different era or in a different part of the country or into a different social class or a different family or or a different um you know category and and if I had been I'd still be me in some sense but I wouldn't hold the views or or subscribe to the schools of thought I don't think that that I subscribe to as me me so so I think it's more to do with the multiplicity of perspectives than with a with a lack of faith in the idea of of objective truth so when when you talk about being an autodidact the stuff what you learn is is clear and and objective it, it it's true Whereas what people think about that stuff is not objective yeah. there's going to be as many different positions on what do we think about this fact um as as there are people and i don't know why just at, at this particular point in my 
uh, four score years and ten. This is this is where I'm sitting. Do you find that you, you when you read about different times, different periods, hmm. is there a sort of nostalgia for a time that you didn't live in? That it's quite easy. And I find myself often reading books set in really any point, you know, any point in the twentieth century, and thinking, I wonder if things were a bit more straightforward then. And and I know it's a sort of cliche to think that the golden age is always behind you rather than ahead of you, but. It, it does feel that way to me. And maybe that's just because there's a sort of depressing view of the outlook of now, but there's a sense to me, I'm sure it wouldn't be true. I'm sure if we were talking having this conversation in 1950 around a table wearing suits mm. and ties uh, in the BBC, uh, <laughs> uh, things would be exactly the same. But it, it does feel, what do you think? Do, do, do you ever feel that, oh, well, I wish it was kind of the, you know, the pre-internet age, that would have been a, a happier time? I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, for the, that'd be the obvious reasons that you're most familiar with, as I am. Things like rickets and scurvy, yeah. and, and slums, and, and the absence of, of running water and indoor toilets and all that sort of thing. But, but also, um, also no, because the, I, I, I mean, the things that interest me the most, I suppose, are professionally and personally, are the, 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 the tribalism of, of where we are now, and, and. I'd like to say, oh, we could go back pre-2016, pre-referendum or pre-austerity and things were so much better and there was so much less hate around. But there clearly wasn't. It, it, it was clearly there. And whether or not it had been screwed down under the lid of political correctness or whether I was just hanging out in the wrong places and not seeing these ancient hatreds still very much alive and kicking when perhaps some of us had somewhat smugly thought that they'd been sent into 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 retreat they they were clearly still there and and the internet has played a big part in bringing them back to the fore just as the the sort of obvious populists and demagogues have done but no any any temptation towards nostalgia is underpinned by the knowledge that things were just as bad then it probably just wasn't quite as clear and evident as it is now yeah uh, i want to talk about the book you've proposed and non-fiction generally but i think you and i both have a have a love of historical fiction don't we i see you because yeah. rec- you you read bloody everything I, when when i sent through my suggestions for what we got i had to double check that you hadn't actually put reread <laughs> as, a, as a presumption on every book i suggested i might have to reread that one because you you're like they say saint augustine don't they was the last person to have read every single book that was in existence i think you're in danger of giving him a run for his money. So while you say I enjoy historical fiction, I'm close at the moment to not reading anything else, which puts us in two very different categories. But I am, yeah, at the minute, I'm really, really uh, loving um, S.J. Paris's... Uh, oh, the, Bruno, uh, the Bruno series. The Bruno series. As, as just the last... Because I inhaled the C.J. Samson Shardlake series yeah, and, 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 and struggled to find anything else that lived up to it. Fascinated by the Tudor era, partly because one of my daughters is studying it at school and it's a great way of bringing it alive for her is to provide some of the extra detail and, and, and insights and humour. But I'm loving the S.J. Paris stuff. I do read a lot of historical fiction. The Edward Rutherford books, I don't know if you've read them. No, I don't know what are they. He, he takes a geographical location. So uh, there's one set in London, there's one set in the New Forest, there's one set in in Rome and he goes back over 2000 years and gives you a family so the new forest ones there's a there's a genetic mutation involving a streak of of white in hair and you have a you you have someone in the 1970s who's got that streak of white in their hair and it, it traces back to the to the to to the sort of huntsman from the time of oh, William amazing. Rufus who also had and I find that I, I haven't read Moscow's another one he's done and it's the same book 
every time, but with different families in a different location. And I, I realized I'd learned a lot of history. I was on a little walk of the of the New Forest with some friends and I was boring for England with my historical knowledge about the areas and the, and the history of common land and all. And I thought someone said, why do you know all this stuff? Did you do it at college? And I realized, no, I just read a really, really engaging page turner that happened to also smuggle in oodles of historical knowledge with the with with an almost thriller type sensibility. And I very much get the same from S.J. Paris and the. And CJ Sampson and, and Philippa Gregory as well. Oh, I love Philippa Gregory. Can I, I'm mm. give you two, can I give you my favourite quote about history? And this is true of historical fiction. It's exactly what you talk about, the New Forest. It's by a, a historian called GM Trevelyan. And he said, the poetry of history lies in the quasi-miraculous fact that once on this earth, once on this familiar spot of ground, walked other men and women as actual as we are today, thinking their own thoughts, swayed um. by their own passions, but now all gone, one generation vanishing into another, gone as utterly as we ourselves shall shortly be gone, like ghosts at Cockrow. And, oh, and I think about that in London all the time. You know, I walk to, to work down the river. I go past the, the, the sort of re- recreation of Shakespeare's globe. And yeah. you just think, you know, I mean, it's not the same concrete, obviously, but, you know, there would have been Shakespeare wandering around this bit of London. I, I, yeah, I, I'm exactly the same. I do it sometimes. I squint and I say to one of my girls, if you squint and you just manage to edit that electricity pylon out of your yeah. vista, that view there. We do it down. At, we live near Brentford, where there are some old school boatyards still, the last vestiges of the of the riverside economy, where where the where the canal came into the Thames and the arterial route to the Midlands was the was the main thoroughfare for goods coming from that part of the world to the to the capital and you can still squint a bit and it would still have looked like that when Dickens was around. Yeah. I love that. I think we've got that in common. Um, just so you've recommended some books there. Let me recommend one historical fiction. We talk about nonfiction. Have mm. you read Caleb Carr's The Alienist? I have. Yes. And you're, I mean, you're, that is bang on the money, isn't it as well? That is very much a, 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 another one that gets you turning the pages through the skills of writing thrillers, but suddenly you realize you're, it's, it's, it's New York, turn of the century, New York, yeah. And and I tell you what, I'll see that and I'll raise you. Oh, I'm not going to remember the name of the writer. Chris Brookmy writes it with his partner, set in Edinburgh. Are you, are you? I know exactly what you mean. I can't think of the yeah. title either. Yeah, um, no, they're brilliant as well. The early days of kind of formal medicine. I do a whole uh, chapter in the book about historical fiction, and I'm just trying oh, to I look forward I'm, to I'm that. Trying to look at the uh, some of the books that. Oh, I tell you what, I love. I don't know if you've read this series. It's a French series by a writer called Maurice Durand. You familiar with this? No. So he's a great, you, you will love this, James. Uh, so, so basically, Maurice, <laughs> Maurice Durand, uh, he's basically, he was a guy who fought, uh, he's famous in France because he fought uh, for the resistance in France in the Second World War, but he was obsessed with medieval France. And he wrote a series which begins with the Iron King, and it's called the Accursed King series. And it's medieval France uh, from the time the oh, Templars were executed. And they put a curse on the line of the kings. And it tells the story of the French kings for 100 years and what goes on there. It's, it, uh, it's, it's puffed now because it's been reprinted. It's, it's huge oh, in France, but it's been reprinted in this country because George R. R. Martin says it's an inspiration for the Game of Thrones. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, but it is yeah. so good. And there's a bit in it, which I can't quite remember the exact quote, but there's a character in it called Robert of Artois, who's this giant six foot six man swaggers. He sort of smells of horse and musk. And he's a real character in, in history and he wanders around. And anyway, in the sixth book, they get to the point in history where Robert of Artois dies in the historical record. And Druon writes a, a footnote and he says, I just want to tell you, the reader, I am utterly bereft. I've lived with this man for the last oh. 10 years. 
And I'm going to have to end this book now because my inspiration's gone because this great oh. figure has died. And because you've read these books, all six of them to that point, and he's been this magnificent figure in it, you totally agree with it. It's just an example of, of historical oh, fiction. But so Maurice Durand, have a look. And, and they've been reprinted and you'll see them. They're beautiful. And if you like the first one, there's six of them. The last one's not very good. The first five are, are just, you'll love them. Uh, but listen, we're going to talk about nonfiction. Um, mm. What's your book? What's the, what's the one you want to talk about? My book is Little Wilson and Big God, which is the first volume of Anthony Burgess's uh, autobiography. And what, why that one? What do you like about that one? Because it's a fascinating choice, that, James. I was thrilled when you, you said that. Um, I, I, well, it, it, I guess a whole bunch of things, actually. We, we were just talking about knowledge, weren't we? And, and one of the things, actually, I read it in my year off, having left public school under, under something of a cloud. <laughs> rather early and and it was I mean I can laugh about it now but looking back it was actually quite traumatic having to tell your parents that, that you're being expelled and stuff like that and what had you done why were you expelled I don't know that story yeah just 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 cannabis nothing exciting yeah. I'm afraid but it was a well-known public school Ampleforth College in Yorkshire so it, it sort of makes the 10 o'clock news in the front page of the Telegraph where my dad was still working at the time so it, it was it was uncomfortable in many ways and I was quite a bruised uh, 18, 19 year old, although putting enormous amounts of effort into presenting a profoundly unbruised exterior to the world, inside I was bruised. And the books that I read that year, all my mates ended up in Goa and Kerala and um, Thailand. And I, I ended up in Chalton Cum Hardy, which is a suburb of Manchester, because I, I, I was someone was foolish enough to pay me to, to act and appear in a play. And I, I, I stayed in the digs that I had up there. And the books that I read then struck me in. in in ways that I'm not sure any books have struck me since. I remember reading Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson, which yeah. couldn't have been further away from my personal experiences at a, at a monastic Catholic public school. But there was common ground with, with her experiences of a fairly fundamentalist religious family, which she fictionalised in that book. But Little Wilson and Big God was bizarre because Burgess was Irish Catholic, which I am. He described himself in the book as more Celt than Anglo-Saxon, which which I was quite a romantic 18, 19-year-old, and, and I, I would very much have done that as well. But he also writes a lot about what we would probably call intellectualism or, or, or the intellectual life, and, and it's a very un-English approach that he has. His grievance essentially is that, that it's, it's looked down on in this country. Uh, the most obvious contrast would be with France, I suppose. Yeah. And, and here, it was very much my experience at school was that the inner life, you know, the passion for poetry or the theatre was, was sniggered at. And not, not in an unfriendly way, but, you, you know, you could captain the rugby team and you were a demigod. You could, you could get into the National Youth Theatre and, and nobody really noticed and and he writes very very powerfully about the uh the where there's a line in england if, if you start talking like that this was after he'd appeared in sood's corner uh, they're scared of knowledge genuine learning is taken to be sudery and and just refreshing myself for this conversation it, it occurred to me that that's still very true and still probably um one of the reasons behind many of the problems that we have as a country is this suspicion you think it maybe you could go straight from that in England, if you start talking like that, you're always criticised. They're scared of knowledge. Genuine learning is taken to be sudery. I could probably plot a line from that to Michael Gove, yeah. suggesting that the country had had enough of experts. I, I love the idea that, that, that in, in other countries, he probably would have been valued more. And in lots of ways, if, yeah. you, if you read a lot of his novels and you try and think of other writers who are like him, 
you know, in America, you might get to Gore Vidal, I suppose. Yes, um, you might, very much so. You might get to Nabokov, even possibly, uh, if you think about the idea of the breadth of knowledge that the ambition, there's a kind of ambition about uh, Burgess, the isn't there? That, that yes. We do look down on ambition, I think, sometimes. I wonder whether it's knowing your place. It might be something to do with, our, our, you know, the fact that our aristocracy is still there, whereas France has guillotined theirs and America never really had one. So, so this idea that if you if you are expected to know your place socially, then I wonder whether it, 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 it sort of almost by a process of osmosis, you're also expected to know your place intellectually and the, and the upper orders, the upper classes are historically not exactly overburdened with intellect or intellectual interest. So I do wonder whether that seeps down through the rest of society. And he very much swims against that tide. And it was a humble background. That was the other thing, of course. He, he wasn't raised in um, in a rarefied academic atmosphere. The Catholicism runs through every every single strand of his, his childhood. He ended up at Zaverian College. So this was part of the reason why the book appealed to me. It's a Manchester book. It's a very, very much a Manchester book. And uh, given Ian Brown's recent comments about coronavirus, I'm running out of Mancunian heroes. Yeah. He talks about Moss Side being a leafy suburb where you'd see people playing the piano through the window of these magnificent Victorian mansions. And of course, when I lived in Manchester in the early 1990s, Moss Side was a byword for violence and, and criminality. So it had those echoes in it. I, I had pals who'd been to Z- the Zaverian College where where he went, and then he went to Manchester University. So while the inner life appealed to, to, to the romantic bruised me, the outer life appealed to the fact that I was, you know, after five years in an incredibly restrictive monastic environment in, in the middle of nowhere in a valley in North Yorkshire, I was living in the middle of a brilliant, magnificent, throbbing city, and, and I was inhaling every single um, whiff of it. And, and here was a throwback to go back to what you, your, your magnificent quote about history. Um, here was Anthony Burgess walking the same pavements and describing the same views, albeit decades previously. Uh, does the Catholicism matter to you? Because I'm always interested. I always forget that you're you're Catholic, James, because yeah. in some ways there's there's something of the post enlightenment about you. Um, you. You're kind of fiercely you're fiercely rational in a way that I it potentially unthinkingly associate with a sort of anti-religious perspective possibly because I associate with my own that you know I'm a very deeply skeptical person about all matters to do with faith but I'm rather heartened that other people feel it at the same time so um is Catholicism and his Catholicism does that strike a note with you it did then I I mean it's religion is a strange thing It, it, it comes and goes and we probably both agree that the it's a by far it's most dangerous when when it brooks no challenge when it brooks no uh, refutation, but but it did then. I was fresh out of, of of you know monastic school, as I say, and his Catholicism, a particular brand of Catholicism as well. I'd been high church English Catholicism for five years, whereas the Irish Catholicism of my father's childhood was something I found easier to to absorb. But but writing my new book, weirdly, I realised that religion played a role in my life that is probably better served by therapy. So when I would pray, I would call it praying. And I, I read, read with interest about Burgess's relationship, not so much with the church, but with God, Little Wilson and Big God. There's a clue in the title. Um, I, I, I was more doing a sort of self-therapy than I was doing praying in the sense that priests yes. encourage. So if I, and I, I have no embarrassment saying things like when I talked to Jesus as a, as a younger man and even right well into my 40s, I, I realize now that I was trying to, apply balm to to wounds that 
that therapy proved to be a much more effective yeah. relief but but while it lasted religion was was all i had and and immensely valuable so when i lost my dad uh 7 years ago sitting in church talking to him would have been filed under prayer for me but i i i wonder now whether actually it was always something else so i don't have i do i am passionately rational and i, I wouldn't allow any religious faith to it to impinge upon any aspect of anybody else's life but it was a huge comfort to me then and and now with a big interregnum in between where i was furiously irreligious uh, and and i realized that it was more to do with the animosity i bore towards some of the monks that had taught me yeah. than it was towards anything that could be laid at the feet of of the bible or or the or the story of jesus um he's famously prolific uh, anthony burgess he, in fact yeah. he, he i think almost alone in british letters he once wrote a book review of his own book uh, for the Yorkshire Post, and he did it under a pseudonym, and did tell them that it was his yeah. book. Uh, uh, but he did write an awful lot, and he and this the reason why it's an interesting when we're talking about autodidactic. He mm. really, really, genuinely was, I think, and you know, even at the age of eleven, he sort of can speak different, yeah. read different languages, and he you know knows about Mozart, and you know he he's sort of passionately uh, keen to demonstrate the breadth of his his knowledge. Um, do you love his novels? Do you read? Have you read many of his novels? Not not recently. I mean, Enderby, most obviously. Everybody else will know Clockwork Orange, which I always struggled with. I never quite got the Rosetta Stone for for, for the language in yeah. in Clockwork Orange, and and I, I I didn't enjoy his novels. I have to be completely honest. Anywhere near as much as I enjoyed the two volumes of autobiography. There's a lovely story about why he was so prolific in 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 Little Wilson and Big God, which I'm sure you know. But it was after coming back from Malaya when he he was diagnosed. With, with some terrible illness, I forget the details. And, and he, he he said to Lynn, his his wife, you, you're going to need some money. Yeah. Uh, you, I've only got a year to live. So he, he um, determined to, to sit down and, and write solidly for a year. Luckily, he lived rather longer. But I, I think that, that speaks to the prolificness in a curiously prosaic but poetic way. And interestingly, James, he, he hated Clockwork Orange. Yes, uh, he called it a jus d'esprit knocked out, knocked off for money in three weeks. It's uh, bloody good in, in in that sense, then, isn't it? <laughs> and it's one of those books where the film kind of subsumed it, so it gave him a it gave him a reputation. Uh, and people, when they think yeah. of the book, always think of the film. They uh, do, and you know that's a curse because I, I know what you mean. I don't love the book. There's a great there's a great thread of invention in it that you can't dismiss. Sure. But I don't love it either. And he didn't. And it's just interesting that. The, and you just wonder whether it would never have been known as much if the film hadn't existed. There's probably several films like that where, which is you know, Godfather was a book that was a massive bestseller. No one really reads anymore. Jaws was a book, uh, but yes. they were both sort of thrillers. And Burgess's work is obviously more than that. But it's just interesting that he. It was a stone around his neck a little bit. Ah, oh, for sure. And and it was such a controversial film. I think it's easy to forget in the in the, this day and age just how huge it was. My first year in London at the London School of Economics in 1991, there was a screening at the Scala Cinema of a film called If. Yeah, I um, remember that. The, the, the public... Lindsay Anderson film, yeah. which is my all-time favourite film and, and plays into a lot of the themes we've touched on about public schools and oppression and all this kind of thing and and it was accompanied by and i took a girlfriend to see it because I, I wanted her to have an insight into my crippled emotional psyche <laughs> as a part of having been through one of these schools and it and it had on the same bill it said um mystery showing or or uh and and the the the, the cinema filled up when it finished 
And I couldn't work out why. So I, I said to my girlfriend, I said, let's see what's going on. I wasn't planning on staying for the mystery feature. But this was the famous screening at the Scala Cinema that, that saw it shut down because they put it on illegally. And it was still, when I started at university, and I, I'm old, but I'm not that old, it was still a matter of folklore to actually get to a screening of yeah. Clockwork Orange. So even if the film had been something he wasn't overly fond of, the size and the weight of the millstone around his neck that it became, I think had as much to do with the censor and the and the prurience of, of, of society and the fury that it engendered than it did with the film, with Kubrick's film itself. My favourite of his books, have you read Earthly Powers? Yes, but again, not for a while. Yeah. It is, that's probably my favourite of his novels, actually. Uh, it's got, it's got, people may know it's got a very famous first sentence, which I'll read now, which is, which is an indication of the rest of the book, actually. It was the afternoon of my 81st birthday, and I was in bed with my catamite when Ali, <laughs> Ali announced that the Archbishop had come to see me. Just beautiful. And that's so much better than anything in Clockwork Orange. Yeah. And that, that actually, that's more the Burgess of Little Wilson and Big God than it is perhaps the Burgess of, 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 of sort of popular um, uh, opinion. That's just, there's everything there, isn't there? I mean, so bold, yeah. so bold, utterly fearless. There's an oddly, there's a, there's a line I hadn't recognised the echoes of. Timothy Moe wrote a book called Brown Out on Breadfruit Boulevard not long ago. And he attempted a similarly staggering opening line but you hear that Burgess line again and you realise he didn't actually get close and actually that's a good example Earthly Powers of a historical novel because it tells it tells the story of the 20th century really doesn't it Hemingway pops up at one point there's there's historical figures I'm I'm rather fond of historical novels that have real life historical figures in it as well. I, I think that's a, that's a... that's what takes the real guts. Yeah. I, if I was able to try writing one, you'd have to, you know, just to bring Charles Darwin in for a cameo yeah. would yeah. take some real nuts, wouldn't it? Yeah, it I would. don't know that I'd have the confidence to do that. Um, I, I want to mention my book. I'm not sure you've read cool. it. Um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Have you read it? My wife has read it. Okay. And she read it as part of her master's in food science, actually. And, and... What does she think of it? brilliant and it turned out that she'd recommended it to me some time ago and i hadn't read it so thanks for that little um <laughs> oh, <no>. opening <laughs> upon our upon our domestic but it what what i if you told me it was a book about pesticides that's probably why i didn't read it it is clearly so so much more than that it's a striking thing it's a really good point because it's a very quiet book which i think is interesting considering the reputation it has so so rachel carson she wrote it as she was being diagnosed with terminal cancer she only wrote four mm. books i guess it was the fourth one and she dies almost after it becomes famous and notorious. It did an awful lot of business in America. She became famous for reasons that I think you would have a deal of sympathy for it. But then the book has lived on. David Attenborough said it's the book that changed the world yeah. the most since Darwin. Incredible. Uh, Al Gore said it was one of the reasons I became so conscious of the environment and so involved with environmental issues. And what she did was she just noticed that the birds had gone quiet where she lived. Mm. And there was an article in, I think someone wrote a letter to the Boston Herald explaining mm. the death of birds due to pesticides. And what happened was she started investigating in it. And the reason I think it's so brilliant is she has this brilliant combination of fact and just enough poetic sensibility. So one criticism of, of nature writing is it becomes very whimsical and very um, uh, um, too slight and flighty. And Virginia Woolf said nature and letters seem to have a natural antipathy, bring them together and they mm. tear each other to pieces. And I kind of know what she means there, but Carson mm. just sort of holds it back. And she writes this, this, this book, which basically says there is indiscriminate spraying of DDT in America yeah. and it is ruining the environment. And everything she says was true, so she was factually correct. And it still sort of rings true today, yeah. this idea, this really simple idea. And in all the debates, such as it is about climate change and, and all of that, 
it just comes back to this basic point, which is that the home of what the wild, this line from Rachel Carson, the home of the wildlife is also our home. And if you don't look after it, you're going to destroy it. And of course, she was just talking simply about DDT and, and uh, yeah. chemicals. But it's true of absolutely everything. In fact, before she was going to write about uh, the oceans and climate change and then die before she, she could do it. But the reason I also thought about you is that the response to it is striking. So she publishes this book and the whole of the chemical lobby <laughs> goes nuts. Uh, yes. I've got a couple of quotes. You're like this. Uh, uh, one of the chemists was quoted, if man were to follow the teachings of Miss Carson, we would return to the dark ages and the insects and de diseases and vermin would once again inherit the earth. And the Secretary right. of Agriculture said she's probably a communist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, plus a change, eh? Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, uh, and because of it, though, but what I also found when I read the book is it's still being debated now in the in the... Nature magazine in 2012. Is it? Someone blames her for 60 or 80 million premature and unnecessary deaths because their argument is that things like malaria have to be uh, dealt with uh, dealt with by killing mosquitoes and you need chemical methods to do it. But when you right. read Rachel Carson's book, they're obviously, as ever, attacking a straw man that she never said. She yes. didn't say there should be a total ban on all pesticides and insecticides. She simply said, we cannot possibly live in a, in a world where it is indiscriminate, where we don't care about the consequence of what we do. Isn't that, that absolutism, which is echoing right through um, contemporary discourse, isn't it? The idea that, that you are either 100% that way or 100% the polar opposite. And of course, it's often done like that, isn't it? With the, um, the idea that they she says one thing and they accuse her of, of saying something a hundred times more powerful than what she said in order to distract attention and undermine the likelihood of the things she's calling for ever happening. Yeah, and ironically, there's a kind of example of the early Streisand effect because the more they spluttered, the more people read the book. And yes. the book, which is when you read it, which I hope you will, James, it's a, um, it's not a polemic. It's not no. outrageously pitched. I did start it. I, I've, read, I've read some of it. And it, I mean, it's a, it, be, the, it begins with the parable, effectively, yeah, it doesn't does, it? Yeah, it does. Exactly that. It reminded me of, oh, bizarrely, Simon Amstel's film, where they posit the um, abolition of meat-eating. It's like, can imagine what the world would be like if, and Sep Simon was positing a, a, a beneficial or a desirable future. This posits a, a world where, where everything has stopped singing. All the insects have stopped chirruping because we've killed them all. Uh, and it's, it's a very plausible. The two things I want to say, uh, um, it, uh, I'm only, I've got a theory, a, a big literary theory that occurred to me when I read this. Let's see if you think. So Rachel Carson was probably gay. Uh, she had a close friend who she went to, on holidays with and some okay. of the letters have survived and some of them haven't. And actually, I, so this book I wrote, I read for a whole year on the commute, 50 minutes a day all yes. sorts of literature, non-fiction, different types of fiction. So every day I was reading books and thinking about them. And you know, the one thing that I, one of the things I came away with very strongly is the number of people who write prolifically and brilliantly were people who their natural sexuality was being constricted. Really? And, and the theory that I just came up with, which may or may not be true, is that I wondered whether their literary outpouring was kind of a response to the fact that they couldn't speak out normally in their lives. They couldn't sort of testify to a large part of their life openly and therefore they channeled it into, into creativity. It, it, just in the book that, books that I read, Daphne du Maurier, Shakespeare, yeah. Byron, Oscar Wilde, Mary Renault, Robert Graves, 
Sylvia Townsend Warner, who wrote great historical fiction, actually as well. Um, uh, Rachel Carson, I would, I, I, and maybe this is just awful cod psychology, and maybe it's not helpful. But it just, I just wondered whether there might be a connection where, if one part of your life, the natural channels are blocked, the outpouring sort of comes out somewhere different, and maybe books became a sort of a channel for that. Or maybe you're, you're conscious that your voice in life is compromised, even if other people would never know that, because you're nursing a, a, a secret or suppressing a aspect of your sexuality. So the one place where your voice would be pure and completely sincere would be on the page. Yeah. Even though you're not writing about anything that's got anything to do with sexuality, you're not pretending to be something you're not when you're at your desk. Yeah, it, it, it just occurred to me, because it just struck me that every time I looked into the background of a writer, it just seemed to be some, something there. Yeah, I'll but, look now. Um, do you think books can change the world, James? Do you, are, yeah. are you sufficiently romantic to believe that? Well, you you know, you, you, you've just proved it, really, with your choice, haven't you? When you think Al Gore, I mean, obviously, there are still environmental problems on the planet, but Al Gore's Nobel Prize probably has its roots in, in Rachel Carson's work. Darwin obviously changed, changed the world. You, you change people, and people change the world, so reading fiction can change people. I, I, I don't think anyone would, would argue with that. Poetry can change the way you look at things. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, you check, but art changes people. Good art changes the way you look at the world, and the people who have been changed may then change the world. And and I, I don't even know that that's romantic. It, it's it's um, it's why we do it, isn't it? I think it is. And I, the question I want to ask you uh, to talk about your own books, mm. James. You talk about the sort of the, uh, the idea of a channel, your voice being heard. Uh, you more than possibly anyone in the country have his, has his voice heard on a on a daily basis. You have the the the, the freest. Um, channel and I, and I was at LBC yeah. for a few years not not to, to obviously to the extent of the success that you were but the idea of sitting in front of a microphone and talking and people wanting to listen yeah. the kind of very pure form of communication which is unmediated in a way that is, is there's not much in common in other media actually no, it's, very, right. it's very basic so you have that you have that daily opportunity to give voice literal voice to to, to what you think um in that context has writing books made any difference at all because your channel's already open you don't need to 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 dig out another one no i I think they do different things so my first book how to be right essentially was a was a was a guide to some of the political movements some of the social shifts that we we were witnessing and and largely shifts that worried me either in in the present or with what they mean for the future and it was that was more an exercise in listening so it, it was it was a book about what I had learned as a result of having that platform that you described so so perfectly. Um, I mean, a lot of people read the book who never listened to the radio show, which is part of the answer to your question. A lot of people um, very kind about my Twitter feed who never listened to the radio show because of the time that, that it's on in the day and that kind of thing. So you know that you're giving people, if you're, if you're giving people food for thought, just slightly sort of... Um, a flippant phrase but if you're giving people food for thought then you, your job is done you know you don't get to decide where the nourishment is uh, expended where it reaches you, do, you don't get to decide what that where that food ends up but if it is food for thought if you're encouraging people to think about things in a way that they wouldn't have done before then then the job is done the, the new book is much more personal the new book is almost entirely about things I have been wrong about because tempting though it was to write a book called how to be writer 
for uh, or even in the current context, I told you so was quite tempting as well. But it, I don't know that anyone would have thanked me for that. And I thought instead, if I, I have this fascination with how people have ending up, ended up voting against their own interests, the Donald Trump supporter during lockdown saying he's not hurting the right people, the mindset that sees you stubbornly and slavishly stuck in a position that isn't just bad for you, but is bad for everybody around you as well. So so the, the, the new book goes in deep on all the stuff that I've been idiotic or, or, or dangerously wrong about over the years. And it, and it tries to work out, going right back to my childhood, where these seeds of wrongness were, were sown. And, and the hope here, obviously, is that other people might be able to apply some of the methods I've discovered or some of the lessons I've learned to their own very, very different experiences with the common ground of, of being stubbornly stuck in a, in, a, in a view that you know is cognitive dissonance is an overused phrase these days but but you know that you, you you know that this can't be evidentially supported but you're also incapable of admitting that you're wrong and and that that's my current area of interest i think as a result of doing the job that i do which takes us right back to to the beginning of, of this podcast it's probably a good place to, to end it the idea of trying to understand the perspective of other people if there's one theory yes. i suppose in in my book it is that reading is an exercise in empathy and if Absolutely. you if you read a book, which by necessity it will be, it'll be written by someone with a different life experience to you. You'll have things in common, and you'll have things different. But the exercise of letting that voice into your brain, letting that perspective be your perspective for however long you, you're holding the book, is one of the great acts of, of human beings. It's one of the great things yep. that we can achieve. Empathy and reading is possibly the great way of doing it. So. Um, that probably connects everything up we've been talking about, isn't it? That you, you... Well, I'd end it with a, with, with a pithy one-liner. That's why fascists burn books. It's a sad way to end it there. Thanks, James. We had a lovely conversation for 50 minutes, and then we, we go to fascist burning books. But you're absolutely right, of course. Though I was, I was going to say, it is, it is a pet theory of mine that, that you know, the, the way that you stop people hating on immigrants or hating on Muslims or hating on... Uh, the, the Duchess of Sussex or hating on environmentalists or whoever we're supposed to be hating on this week is is the ability to imagine that it was you, you know, John Rawls's veil of ignorance. But but empathy is is the biggest enemy of totalitarianism because there would be no Holocaust. There would be no Holocausts if everybody who might have committed the Holocaust had been capable of imagining being on the receiving end. It's, the, it's Martin Niemöller in a nutshell, isn't it? It is. Uh, what a joy speaking to you, James. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've re really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.